Hello everyone, it's March 15th, 2022. Finally, we have more info on Astra's ferry mishap last month. We're slowly piecing it together. Then we talked to Zach Tong of the Breaking Tabs YouTube channel. He's going to tell us how he recreated a piece of JWST and other cool stuff. Big show, let's get to it and lift off. the tower welcome to episode 350 of the overall mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben i'm dennis nice round number first of all 350 that's cool yeah but it's a long time till we get to 512 and i don't think we appreciated 256 enough when it was here (laughs) that's true (laughs) yeah so two weeks ago i guess the last time you were on ben you told us about your space flavored coke um which i have since tried and uh, it's it's okay. It's definitely Coke. I, I tried the Coke Zero version of it, and I think I described it as, because um, I talked about it last week, I, I don't think it made the show, but um, it tastes kind of like cotton candy-ish or something. Yeah. Which, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, actually, because I don't like that flavor, but uh, it was okay. Did, did you get the perfumey aftertaste that I did? Maybe, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Mm. A little perfumey. I think it would be cool to, to, I mean, not necessarily to eat or consume, but something that really does smell like what space smells like. Yeah. I would like to yep. get a sample of that if anyone's interested in uh, mixing that up. I don't know how you do it, except, uh, you know, from what I understand, just burn some meat in an electrical fire and you kind of have the smell of space. Um, so, yeah, if if we uh, found a perfumer who could put together a batch of space scent for us, maybe we could distribute that to fans. But until that happens, I am getting ready to send out these posters. I packaged up the first 50 last night. I um, bought a roll of craft paper to put to, to roll them up with. And uh, I sat in front of the TV and cut the craft paper into squares <laughs> and then uh, took a box of uh, 50 U-line uh, cardboard tubes and went through the process of putting a cap on, rolling up the poster, shoving it in, putting the other cap on. So now I got to figure out how I'm going to label them because I'm pretty sure that my that, that the default UPS or USPS printable labels, which are half of an eight by eight and a half by 11 sheet. I think they're going to be too big. So I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to print out labels because I'm, I, I need to get a production line going. <laughs> I'm not going to write on uh, labels and then stick postage on them or anything. But I got to figure that out. But the first 50 hopefully will be going out this week. Um, I need to go buy more craft paper and the next set will go out. So these are going out to our Patreon supporters. Um, I have a list. I've If you're a Patreon supporter and you are getting one, I've already sent you a message um, asking you to add your address to your account. If you tried to add your address in the past and weren't able to, that's my fault. I have changed our account setup and you should be able to do it. If not, DM me your address. And uh, if you don't want a poster for free, which is weird, um, I understand. Um, Some people don't, don't want a poster. Don't don't want to waste the um, the paper because they're not interested. That's totally fine. Send me a message. Let me know you don't want it so that I don't bug you because I'm about to send out a bunch of messages to people <laughs> bugging them because I haven't got uh, their addresses yet. But I only I only need 50 to start out with. So we'll we'll see how many I have. Um, but those will be going out. Thank you, everybody, so much for supporting the show uh, as genuine, generously and as continually as y'all do. It's really incredible. Uh, I don't feel like 
we put your money to very good use because right now it's sitting in a PayPal account, not even earning 2% interest. Um, but honestly, we, we were saving up to be able to go to the next IEC, and it looks like it might just be Dennis going this year. We'll, we'll see. Well, I might go, yeah. Oh, okay, I still, okay. I, I need to work that out. You know, that's like a yeah. – I haven't traveled abroad in a long time. I don't even have a valid passport anymore, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, my, uh, my mind was made up that I'm not going because uh, I just got two business trips added on to my year in addition to me going out to Long Island by car once a month. So, oh, um, <laughs> guys, <laughs> I, don't wanna, I don't want to go. Astra and that failure analysis. Uh, we now have one. We were talking about it, what, a month ago? Not even a month yeah. ago? As yeah. to what happened with that payload fairing and the second stage and all that. I don't remember what conclusion we came to other than obviously the payload fairing did not separate properly yeah. uh, it looked more like it was a mechanical problem but it looks like it might have been more of a software issue well so that ish so this is actually really going to be satisfying for anybody who hasn't read this yet because a we were right but b there's more information uh in the release the the press release so th this is like really cool um so just as a reminder, this is LV-0008, um, which was flying the Alana 41 mission. Astra put out a press release, um, but they were careful to note that the FAA investigation is not yet complete and that the uh, findings that they discussed are preliminary. And, you know, FAA has to sign off on everything before we're, before we're good to go. But I would be shocked if FAA uh, came to a different conclusion. I'm assuming it's like a joint investigation. I don't know exactly how these things work. But yeah, so the, the fairing didn't open. It's, it's kind of interesting. There are actually five separation mechanisms uh, tied to deploying the fairing. And they have an interesting little diagram that looks like uh, the side view of the fairing um, with the seam running down the middle. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the, the seam running left to right. It's actually more of a diagram of just the seam, I guess, but they have circled five different mechanisms. Um, two of them are at the roots, two of them are in the middle, and one of them is at the tip where the two halves join. Uh, one and two are at the root. I'm assuming that those are um, hinge-related releases. Um, three and four are in the middle, um, and the the latch that we saw in the video not disconnect properly um, turns out to be number four, uh, the, the fourth mechanism. I don't know if they number them this way. It kind of seems like they're a little bit of a discrete trifecta of systems. Uh, and then five is up at the top, and maybe that is also a latch. However, what happened was they fired in the incorrect order. Uh, four in the middle and five up at the top fired one after the other when they should have been firing what? one before the other. So whatever, whatever the, the mechanism up at the top is, it's interesting that it is time dependent. It has to fire presumably before number five fires. Maybe, maybe number five is the pusher. And so if, if one of the latches doesn't open before the pusher actuates. The pusher can jam the latch shut or something by putting tension on it. The way I would see it is that if you separate it at the base in the middle first, then if there's a delay before you separate the top, it's going to essentially fan outwards. Yeah. And kind of, you know, spin in that direction 
you know, if there is any rotation to it. And so it would be easier to miss the payload than if it were to separate at the top <laughs> and then the bottom, which would, I guess, want to bring the bottom parts more in or at least not rotate them out much. Right. So I, I think I think what happens is one and two at the base are pushers, um, which like push the hinge open, almost like opening a door pushing your hand on the hinge side of the door. Like you need a lot of force, but the end of the door is going to move very quickly because it's a lever. Um, and so I, I think what happens is those are pushers. You release latches and then those bottom pushers can fling the, the fairing away. Like you're talking about Right, right. M- my, my instinct and who knows if this is right or not is that three and four in the middle are latches that hold everything shut. And then five up at the top is a third pusher that gets the fairing, uh, seam open enough that the, that pushers one and two at the root will have enough leverage to finish pushing it all the way open. And the, the reason I say that is because there would be a very distinct order. You would want three and four to fire first, uh, open the latches then use the top pusher number five and then use the bottom pushers one and two. Um, so three, four, five, one, two. And if you swap it so that it's three, five, four, one, two, then you wind up with one of the latches opening properly. The top pusher, which we saw, right? The top pusher wedging a gap open, which we saw and then potentially. Um, putting enough force on the closed number four latch that it wedges itself shut. I think it's good to cite this Space News article or actually a quote from, uh, who was it? Uh, somebody at Astra. They said that specifically what happened was apparently it's not so much that it got wedged shut. It looks like that the signal for it to fire just never reached it because the other latches had fired first. Colin did mention in the chat that his understanding was that the latch at the top severs all the wires. Right. You're, you're right. I forgot about this important bit, which is that they, they said it's a, an off nominal movement of the fairing and that caused an electrical disconnection so that the latch never closed or the, the, the fourth latch never opened. And I'll, I'll bet what it is is that the cables run through the base of the, I was going to say my first thought was that it was like pogo pins, like pins that, are not severed like it's not wires that get cut but instead it's uh, it's contacts that are released when the fairing moves um but it makes a lot more sense that you would have a you would have wiring that runs through it that can get severed seems weird to do that at the very top of the fairing but you know maybe um maybe they want to have n- nice long uh wires that can flop out of the way and kind of stick themselves on the outside of the vehicle rather than potentially falling in and impinging on the second stage. If you look at the video on Astra's website, it looks like there's wiring running along the right from the top to the bottom of the fairing, and then it branches out to reach one of the joints. And it continues down and presumably then branches off to reach one of the bottom pusher joints as well. And so that might be the way that they do it because that wiring is... It separates on the left there where the joint is. And so the wiring wouldn't need to be severed or anything. It would just... It would all run on just the one side of the yeah, fairing, right? Yeah, one half yeah. of the fairing would have all of its wiring housed there, and the other mm-hmm. half of the fairing would have all its wiring housed along there, along that spine. In any event, like, I think this is a, a pretty good understanding, even, you know, the limited understanding that we have. Like, yeah, the, these things fire in the wrong order. You wind up with uh, with wires not going where they're supposed to. And what, what's really interesting is, 
that in and of itself would have been a, an interesting little tidbit, but Astra decided to release some more information. They actually re, uh, told us about what what the root cause was. It turns out that there's uh, this electrical harness um, that is that that's running all of these these cables to where they're supposed to go, and the harness was manufactured incorrectly, um, literally swapping uh, two of two of the ends. Um, so that they ran to the wrong place. And the, the reason that this happened is because an, an engineering drawing what, basically had a typo. And like, boy, this is a really bad day, uh, for whoever made that typo. And then whoever was supposed to review the document, like it really sucks, but it, it's fantastic that like this happened. You know, Astra knows why it happened. Astra told us why it happened. You know, they did a whole press release saying, Hey, here's exactly how we screwed this up. Then they went on to talk about why it wasn't caught on the vehicle. So they actually um, do testing on this harness before the flight. Um, it's called um, an end-of-line signal test. And I believe it's basically just a, uh, a continuity test where you, you plug in something to each end. However, if you're testing something based on a drawing that is wrong in the right way... <laughs> You don't get to see it. So the way they described it is that this method of testing uh, can detect errors in the build or errors in the installation of the part, but it can't find errors in the design. Um, so it's really a, a nasty uh, mistake to make. Um, and uh, not only did they, you know, figure this out, they also were able to reproduce it in the factory. So they have other vehicles, uh, in construction and I'm assuming they pulled the wiring harnesses out of them and, uh, did the same kind of continuity testing and went, Oh crap, these connectors on this end are connected to the wrong connectors on that end. Um, the fix is really simple. They fixed the drawing and they updated the harnesses that had already been constructed. Then they did some future proofing. Um, they added a new end of line signal test that will actually detect design issues. I'm assuming that it's, also a continuity test, but it's running from the board to the actuator or something like that, rather than just uh, one end of the connector to the other. So that way you can identify here's, you know, this test point on the board that should connect to the hot end of this actuator. Let me also connect up to the hot end of the actuator. Hey, that that makes a little beep, um, something like that. So that's like the issue that we knew about. Um, we kind of suspected there might have been a second issue, but we dismissed it. Uh, we, and it's really fun to find out that, that it was actually a thing that we, that we missed. So the second stage ignites, uh, its, its engine and the exhaust finally blows the fairing open. And the second stage goes spinning off, uh, looking like Kerbal Space Program in, in real life. And we saw that and we're like, yeah, they, it must have just had so much rotational momentum that it couldn't overcome the, the rotation and it just, it just died. Actually, what's really interesting is that's not true. There was actually a separate unrelated software issue that caused uh, that tumble to not be recoverable. Now we, we were wondering, you know, if it had been able to recover, would it have been able to make it to orbit? And I still think that our answer of probably not is, uh, is the way to go, but it should have been able to recover from that tumble 
um, to some extent. And what happened was the, the thrust vector control was taken offline on the second stage. And they're not super clear about what happens here. And I think it's because it's a very esoteric computer networking issue. <laughs> Uh, but it is a type of issue called a packet loss. You know, basically, uh, there are like two main types of data transmission. One that we don't use anymore, um, which is where none of your data is packetized. And then the, the modern way of doing things, which is where you send packets of data. And the reason that sending packets of data is so nice is it allows you to do things like the internet, where different parts of your YouTube video can take multiple channels across the internet and still arrive to you and get assembled into the right, in, into the right video. Um, it allows you to do, um, error checking and, um, uh, you know, partial network loss recovery and all, all these cool things. And so inside the, the second stage inside every single rocket, anything with computers these days, um, there are networks of different computers talking to each other, different processors talking to each other. And in this case, um, one, <laughs> one of the computers was talking to another one and somewhere along the line, a couple of packets were dropped. It, it sounds like it was more than one, a series of missed signals is what they said. And, um, that should be totally recoverable. Uh, the receiving system should be able to tell that it is missing data and it should be able to let the transmitting system know that it's missing something and get it retransmitted. And Astra in their press release talks about how they design their systems to be packet loss tolerant. However, a lot of weird things happened all at once, probably due to the rocket getting bonked real good on the head. Um, uh, they call it an unlikely combination of factors. And so it kicked off uh, an unspecified chain of events and it resulted in the thrust vector control going offline and that packet loss not actually being recoverable. And they said this is like a weird situation that we didn't think could happen or that we didn't predict would happen. Um, but they are doing the right thing to do, uh, in space and engineering and life in general. They're learning their lesson and they went and fixed it. Um, they pushed what they called a trio of updates. Oh, for, first, let me mention that they, uh, did test this on the ground and reproduced it. Um, they have a hardware in the loop simulator, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's using hardware instead of just software to emulate the hardware. They actually have hardware that they can feed fake signals to and see how it reacts. Uh, so they released what they call the trio of updates that fixes not only this issue, um, but it also guards against other similar failure modes. And uh, that's good. Um, it sucks that, you know, sometimes we have to learn through failure, but if you're going to fail, uh, fail early, fail often and learn from your failures. So that, that's interesting that that, that could have happened without having the, uh, the tumble already added to the second stage. So uh, as we head out of this uh, new segment, uh, I wanted to read a quote from Andrew Griggs, uh, the senior director of Astra's mission management and, and assurance. Um, Andrew's the one who has the byline for this press release. Um, he says, I've been continually impressed with the speed, passion, and diligence that the team showed as they worked through these complex issues to identify exactly what occurred and determine the right path forward to resolve each problem. Uh, Astra sounds like a pretty cool company to work for. That's all I got to say. And as far as identifying additional problems uh, while troubleshooting what had just happened, at least the good news is that they just found the one software issue and it being a rarer one at that rather than running into Starliner's situation where they had a list of dozens of 
corrective actions. Yeah, like 66 or, or something. Or heck, even Starliner having the uh, the stuck fuel valves that they had to sit on the pad for ages and then decide to pull everything out and then decide to destack it. I, I don't know if they destacked it. I don't remember. But like Starliner's been out there for a while with hardware issues on top of the software issues that they presumably already identified and fixed. Yeah, yeah. Very, I mean, very different you know, uh, vehicles in terms yeah. of level of complexity and design. I don't mean to no crew rated, but I just is, mean, yeah, yeah. I just mean to say at least, you know, at least if you're going to find an issue, you find just, just one and it didn't, you didn't find well, I mean, honestly, it's, it's two, isn't it? You know, it's, it's the main issue. And then this extra bonus issue, like that's really good, but yeah, better, better that it's not hundreds of correction corrective actions so so dennis how do we know that that isn't the case we know that's not the case because they have a notam issued <laughs> uh that suggests that lv0009 is planned for launch on march 14th or 15th so you might have already seen it launch or heard about yeah. it or yeah. it's you're listening very early maybe you still have a chance to catch the launch uh mm. we don't know <laughs> well I, and also what's really cool is um they issued a NOTAM uh, and then refused to comment on it to uh, Spaceflight Now. But on their website, it says that that uh, LV-9 uh, is planned for the 14th through the 15th. And the NOTAM was 13th through the 15th, I believe. So they've even narrowed it down a little bit. So yeah, yeah, good, good to know they're going to be flying again. All right, short and sweets, and we got three. And Dennis, what is the first one? First up, OSAM-1 completes critical design review. Yay! NASA's on-orbit servicing, assembly, and manufacturing one, or OSAM-1 mission, which will be the first to robotically refuel a satellite intended for refueling, has passed its mission critical design review, or CDR. This important milestone was passed for the mission CDR less than a year after the same milestone was passed for the spacecraft bus, which along with the three robotic arms are being built by Maxar. NASA can now proceed with flight manufacturing, assembly, and integration of the vehicle, which aims to grapple Landsat 7 for refueling after a 2025 launch. Next, uh, China to commercialize Tiangong. China's Human Spaceflight Agency, CMSA, is planning to open up its Tiangong station to commercial missions and activities. Tiangong is scheduled to operate for at least 10 years, during which time astronauts from other countries are expected to visit. The CMSA is currently working with the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs to send international experiments to its orbital outpost. Jeff Manbar, CEO of NanoRacks, said they've already lost at least one customer to the Chinese space station, remarking that ISS and Tiangong are now in competition for commercial customers. All right, and lastly, Soyuz embargo leaves many satellites grounded. The indefinite removal of the Soyuz launch vehicle from the market has left many companies without a means to orbit for their satellites. The hardest hit of these is OneWeb, which had six more launches scheduled this year aboard Soyuz. While Russia's involvement in commercial launches has shrunk due to competition from SpaceX and other new space launch providers, the sudden loss of Soyuz has left its existing customers with little time to find another ride to orbit. Other launch providers are already booked and rescheduling will take time. Russia's Proton rocket is also not an option as it too has been put off limits due to recent sanctions. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have some interesting, um, well, not corrections, but uh, elaborations or explanations for us regarding last week's This Week in Spaceflight history. So there was one aspect, and I know, Ben, you weren't present, so 
I guess you're not up to date. So you, we were talking about Geosat, yeah. which is something that you did know because you provided the clue. But one thing that at least I couldn't figure out, and I guess neither of us could, was mm-hmm. what this had to do with submarines. Because one thing that was mentioned was that this was actually commissioned by the United States Navy, and it was supposed to help submarines in some way, but it was classified. But like we couldn't figure out how does this help submarines. And so we had some responses from a couple of listeners, uh, three of them, in fact, uh, explaining that. I think we had more than that, but these were the only ones that were like definite and actually had sources. Um, but like we got, I think we got three totally different answers. And I kind of love that we got three totally mm. different answers because they're all probably right. So the first one is from Matthew Bell, which who sent an email. And I think if I got this right, there's nothing he didn't put anything in the email. It's just the title itself. Yeah. Uh, the so title did, of the email. He did this thing that <laughs> I line. love. Yeah. Which is a, it's, it's a subject line email. And what you do is you put EOM at the end for end of message to let people know that there's nothing in the body that they should be expecting. And, um, I really tried to get this into, um, my works culture. Um, yeah, because I never we send so many, e- yeah, we send so many one line emails. And I was like, maybe if I just start doing it, people will get on board and it just confused the heck out of people. So <laughs> I really love that Matthew here uh, gave us an EOM. It, it made me feel very happy. So what he said was a geosat geoid measurement. Submarines can navigate completely passively by full tensor measurement of gravity. So basically, and this really shocks me. So you can navigate a submarine just by measuring just the local gravitational field, the local gravitational, uh, how strong gravity is exactly where you are. So I don't think that this is a good way to navigate. And I don't think, and I'm sure that you can't drop a sub anywhere and they'll know where they are just by gravity. But I think if you just keep track of it, you can do some sort of weird version of dead reckoning where you go, okay, I think I've been traveling in a straight line and my, you know, I've seen the gravity field change from this intensity to that intensity while I was at this depth and that depth. Okay. So that must mean that I've gone, you know, X far or I'm in this region of the ocean, which is really cool. You're exactly right, Ben. I right. You can imagine there's reasons why a submarine needs to go by dead reckoning and their, you know, inertial measurement sensors will just accumulate errors over time, as we know. Mm-hmm. spaceflight. <laughs> and so this is just a way to really improve on it. You put on a sensor that literally measures the second derivative, spatial derivative of the gravitational field around you. And you can use that as a reference point to the geoid, essentially, and be able to get improve your positioning when you are basically going off the grid, presumably because you want to be quiet because you're a submarine. And sometimes you need to be evasive and stealthy. And that seems pretty obvious to me now. Uh, so I don't <laughs> know why I didn't think of it then. Because uh, I guess... Especially back then, I'd, well, no, even, yeah, so during the Cold War, which is when this was happening, GPS did exist, but I don't suppose it can penetrate, you know, however many leagues, uh, or that's not the right term, right, because mm-hmm. that's a measure of distance, mm-hmm. How you know, however many meters of water that's above you, so um, how else do you know where you're going? Um, I mean, you know, like you said, there are, there's like at least one other way. And, and you might be revealing yourself, too, if you mm-hmm. were to, you yep. know, be going based off of you know, navigational systems like that. It would be passive, right? So, I mean, you're just picking up a GPS signal. So how would that give you away? Don't they literally just like shut down the submarines pretty much and just kind of <laughs> float? Qu- they well, you can, you can still listen. I mean, around? yeah, you've got, you've got passive sonar that is basically just a hydrophone. It just listens for things without sending out any ping. So I, I think I think that's okay. So yeah, so that's one explanation. The other one comes uh, from Andrew, not Z. So someone who's not Andrew Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- this this is a different Andrew who asked us not to use their last name. Oh, 
perfectly fine. And I was like, well, we already have an Andrew, so we got to call you Andrew not Sandanowitz. So Andrew not Z uh, says uh, one of the Navy's most expensive jobs is maintaining their submarine nuclear missiles. Since the missiles are on a moving submerged vessel, targeting is always an issue. I recently had the opportunity to peruse the first chapter or two of the linked book. Um, and he links a book below. I got enough out of it to understand that the local gravitational field is important when trying to be as precise as possible when landing a one mile wide nuclear fireball and much larger shockwave on a target. Um, apparently close counts for horseshoes and hand grenades as the saying goes, but not for nuclear bombs. Yeah, I guess so, huh? But anyway, I have no personal knowledge, but my guess based on this textbook is that the Navy needed better gravitational data to allow for targeting their submarine launched ballistic missiles. That is also likely why they declassified from south to north. Um, so basically the explanation is that, you know, there's not a lot of targets, so they didn't want to reveal any information regarding the northern hemisphere, which is where yeah. the United States and Russia and other countries exist. So, and like that's a, that's such a great explanation for North versus South is like it doesn't matter what it looks like at your target; it matters where you're launching from. And then also we got a tweet from Aaron Saudi, and he says uh, via Twitter, the Office of Naval Research paid me to work on ocean models as a grad student. Surface height measurements tell you a lot about circulation. The Navy is interested in interior circulation so subs can hide under sharp thermal gradients that reflect sonar. And then he also says uh, the Wikipedia article has a good summary. And if you Google sea surface height anomaly, you will get a million and one data sets and scholarly articles related to it. So, so lots of information on sea surface height anomaly. All right, so that's a pretty cool so, elaboration. Quite a variety, yeah. Yeah, yeah isn't that cool? <laughs> Makes me very happy. Our listeners came through big time. Yeah. And welcome to the interview segment. Today, I'm very excited about this. We have Zachary Tong, uh, creator of the Breaking Taps channel on YouTube. And Zach fulfilled a wish that I had. We talked about this a little bit ago. The, uh, the JWST hexapod actuators are like this amazing, uh, contraption that I talked about for hours and hours. And like offhandedly, I mentioned it would be really cool if somebody would go 3D print one. And then like a week later, I got uh, an email from somebody saying, Hey, did you see this? This YouTuber built one. I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I clicked in and, uh, at the end, it, it turns out that uh, Zach made it because we introduced it on the show and it fascinated him as much as it fascinates me. And so this wonderful thing happened in the world and it makes me so happy. So welcome, Zach. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. So, so first, why don't you like tell us about your YouTube channel? Cause it's really good. And maybe like tell us a little bit about how you came to make videos in your garage. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So. The YouTube channel started as kind of a machining channel, which is where the, the name came from, breaking taps. Um, machine taps are used to like make threads in metal parts. And I'm a really terrible machinist, as I discovered. And so I broke a lot of taps and thus the name was born. Um, that was, I don't know, four or five years ago, I just picked up an old milling machine uh, locally to work on some projects. And I don't know if other people watch machinist channels, but this old Tony was kind of my gateway drug into machining. He's a really funny machinist and uh, does a lot of manual work. 
so that's kind of how the channel started. And then over time, it's shifted towards more material science and optics and microfabrication, uh, that sort of realm, partially because I'm better at that than machining. And it's just it's just stuff that I find really interesting. And I have kind of a ADHD hobby personality where I like to jump right. around between different hobbies. Right. So it's it's worked out. Uh, people seem to enjoy it. It's kind of a sort of hands on garage science aspect and sort of just kind of like exploring interesting processes or materials or you know fabrication methods stuff like that uh, so that's kind of the the thing in a nutshell so uh the hexapod actuators i feel like we need to give a quick refresher for anybody who isn't super familiar um you know very fine uh control for the mirrors on jwst um and also a very wide range of motion that's required. And the actuators are able to do all of that with one single stepper motor. And to, to accomplish that, they've got this really fantastically simple drivetrain uh, that can drive two mechanisms at will, one or the other or both. Actually, I guess it's just one or it's both. It, it uses a ball screw for the course adjustment and a really clever little fixed linkage with an offset cam for the fine adjustment. I, I guess like what about this mechanism grabbed you so much? Like I know what grabbed me when, when we were describing it. Was it clear what was going on or is it complex enough that you had to like go and look at images and then it hits you how cool it is. Yeah. Uh, so the, your description definitely intrigued me. Like I didn't fully understand how all the bits and pieces worked, but it was enough to really pique my interest. Uh, and I'm a sucker for reading a good white paper. So I enjoyed <laughs> pulling open the paper when I got home. Uh, I There were definitely things about it that I didn't understand until I'd even had it fully modeled up. Oh, like, really? I just didn't, yeah. Like parts of oh, it good. just didn't quite click to me. I could see it and I understood your explanation and the paper's explanation, but I still didn't like really grok it until yeah. I'd actually like catted it. I'm like, oh, okay, that is what this piece is for. That's why this is there. Uh, so it, it was kind of an, an iterative approach before I actually got to a full understanding of it. I think the flexure is what sold me though when I was first listening to it. I'm a, a sucker for flexures. I just love all flexure-based mechanisms. So when I heard that, I'm like, all right, I need to go check this out. <laughs> right. So um, the the flexure, like this this compliant mechanism, I mean, it's it's really like a force multiplier, but it's like a force divider, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, like there are some really good photos uh, in that one paper where you did you just like trace over it and extrude a, a part or like did <laughs> you do any yeah. did you do any math to to get the lengths just right or what uh no it's it's pretty much just tracing but in 3d so in the paper they've got a front view and a side view which were the main ones that i worked off of there were some accessory views which helped me kind of just figure out placement of different parts but the front and the side i just drug those into my cad program i used fusion 360 and made a two canvases that were like 90 degrees separated mm -hmm. and slapped those in and you can calibrate the scales and so i went off the uh i think the front view has like the main scale it says it's like 150 millimeters or something like that uh and I just kind of like lined stuff up and scaled both canvases to be roughly the same and started blocking out the mechanism. So I think I started with the flexure itself because it's kind of the most easily traced section. Uh, yeah. 
and it's you know there's nothing obscuring it so it's like a really easy thing to get in place and then just started kind of working down from there like what okay what what hatches of that where are the main shafts the gears are roughly this big and i know the gear ratio because the paper says it so let's punch in a bunch of different combinations and like a gear generator until i get something that fits and just kind of worked from there uh, the mm-hmm. the tricky part was actually the a few of the parts of the actuator are clearly custom made like bespoke parts so the bearings that they used must have been just tiny little bearings which i didn't have anything on hand remotely this right size so i had to kind of inflate parts of the actuator to be able to use the small bearings that i did have so that kind of made things a little trickier because i was working around materials that i could get a hold of and then same idea with the ball screw like you just can't buy a 21 millimeter ball screw <laughs> no one makes you know that, like that actually kind of surprises me to be honest yeah i think it's just so small i made some educated guesses in a few places like the the total travel is 21 millimeters but i'm kind of assuming the ball screw was a bit bigger than that just to help yeah you know just because and so i kind of just guesstimated on some dimensions in a few different places and you're like eh, that looks like it's mostly correct well and that's, that's kind of the lovely thing about uh uh, a little 3d print like this is it doesn't have to be perfect nobody wants that it right. just has to represent yeah. the the structure and and you know really just show off the drivetrain like that's really what's what's cool yeah and there are a few details that i did omit purposefully like the the friction brake it just mm-hmm. isn't in the mechanism it was too hard to try to figure out how that actually integrated and i meant to explain it in the video and i just forgot um so there's a few details like that that just aren't in the actual model I don't know if it made it through the edit, but that um, that little friction brake. So the the brake that we're talking about, boy, I don't even know if this is going to make it in the edit. Uh, the the <laughs> friction brake that we're talking about is um, on the top of it, it, it's the ball screw has got a giant a giant gear on it. I think it's the uh, the called the coarse gear. There are two little beads of plastic that are pressed into it with springs um, to keep it. Uh, in place until you apply enough torque. And so it's just enough that the ball screw won't back itself out. And the particular plastic that they use, it turns out is like a really, like it's, it's like, uh, um, like using nylon, uh, for, you know, something that you want to slip, but not, you know, be zero friction, um, kind of like a lubricant or, or Teflon, something like that. And I just didn't recognize the trade name and I looked it up. And all my Googling somehow led me to the user folder of a nuclear scientist at MIT <laughs> who, who had happened to, to make a part out of, out of this plastic or needed to replace a seal or something made with this plastic. And it just like, I, that's one of the reasons why I love space topics like this. Like when you really get into it, you wind up in the weirdest places. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the break, I I'm sure it was absolutely not required given that like some of your, or maybe all of your, uh, your axles were all 3d printed as well. Right. <laughs> they were. Yeah. Don't do that. If anyone's <laughs> doing this, no, it's home. a bad idea. It's a bad idea, <laughs> it's but it's, it's cool that you could get as much 3d printed as you did. Um, did you, did you print them integrated? No, you didn't print them integrated at least with the, the tumbler. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the camshaft. Um, yeah, no, all the, all the shafts were printed independently. I considered 
printing them as a as a single single kind of monolithic because there's parts that you could attach it to like different gears that you could make it integral to uh, but it would have made assembly more challenging and i knew all these parts were going to need like sanding and filing mm. to get everything to fit because i didn't tolerance anything in the cad model for 3d printing so i knew there's going to be a lot of that and then just knowing my 3d printer especially long thin parts can kind of warp sometimes if they're not well supported and so i just knew that mm -hmm. As soon as I printed a monolithic, you know, gear plus a shaft or whatever, it wasn't going to be accurate dimensionally. So I just did everything independently and <laughs> tediously filed everything to fit and glued it in place, which is, uh, yeah, don't do that at home, kids. <laughs> it was not very fun. And it's really wobbly, too. If you watch the, the mechanism, there's... Oh, yeah. It's like, it kind of just barely works, which was fine yeah. with me, but it's, it's cute in its wobbliness. It's like, <laughs> I'm trying, love me yeah. father. So did, did you just not have any, any like stainless shafting sitting around or what? I didn't know. Um, I was, I was being impatient was part of it. Like I could have ordered some from McMaster and it would have been here like two days. Uh, but I just really wanted to get it done because I was excited about it and it was one of those things I wasn't entirely sure if some of the dimensions would work uh, or if I would need to redesign parts of it. So I didn't, yeah. you know, want to go ahead and buy it. So I'm like, oh, I'll 3D print them first and see how it goes. And then it ended up actually working once I got it assembled. So I just kind of ran yeah. with it. What but, And what's, yeah. what's the motivation to do a second revision? Like, right. Yeah. Like, honestly, it's it's kind of better that, it, that you didn't do a second revision because somebody will come along and do it, even if it takes a year or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they'll do it a lot better. And that's fine yeah. by me. Like, yeah. <laughs> quick I mean, and dirty that's, is, is A-OK. -okay. Yeah, like that's the beauty of open source. Like, it's really cool. Um, it's like, it is open source. Like, if you want to go download uh, his CAD files, you can go do that. Um, and like, if, if this sounds interesting to you and you want to do Rev2, like, go do it. And Yeah, please do. Mm -hmm. It'd be great. Let us know. It'll be really cool. And really, um, the, the only one that... I mean, you could do this out of metal too if you had a lathe, but the camshaft is really the only part that had to be 3D printed because it has a kind of a complex geometry. Everything else, I'm sure you could find, you know, gears of the right dimensions yeah. and all the shafts are easily accessible. Yeah, you could you could do it on a lathe with like a fifth axis, but like it just seems unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if I could just throw out a challenge there, I think maybe the next step would be to print three of these. Ooh. And then print the wiffle plates and the delta frame and the hexapod and basically build yeah. your own mirror segment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would be lying if I said it didn't occur to me because mm. that would be really cool. Um, <laughs> I started doing the math on it. I'm like, okay, well, this is to scale. So how big would the thing? And then I realized the mirror segment oh. is like a meter oh. and a half or something big. Oh. <laughs> That'd be a, a big print. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever worked with a with a Stuart platform before? Like, I haven't even looked into any of the. I'm assuming it's it's uh, linear equations. To, no, to I haven't. Um, I'm familiar with them, I'm familiar enough, and especially knowing my my skills, that I would not be able to do the kinematics. <laughs> I'd have to find like a project and then crib all yeah. our code for it. Um, I, I'm sure so, there's a, yeah. a very good generalized software to to drive a Stuart platform out there. It's at least pretty standard as far as like esoteric mechanisms go. Like Stuart platforms are reasonably common. So, so you you mentioned a couple of components that just didn't quite click until you had built them. And honestly, one of the ones that 
didn't click for me until I saw your version was the torsional stabilizer. Like mm-hmm. I understood what it was there for, but I didn't understand why it was the shape it was or why it was as chunky as it is. Um, what were some of the components that, that you learned about? Cause that's, that was one of the things that I really wanted to hear from you. Yeah. The, the stabilizer actually was the main one that I just, I understood conceptually what it was for. Like they explained the reasoning pretty well in the paper, but I still just couldn't wrap my head around like what is this thing actually doing back there so that was that was 100 an item that i just it clicked once i saw it like "Ah, okay it it helps it do this thing but not that thing what else just how the the ball screw and the coarse gear mechanism works i sometimes have hard like visualizing the ball screw parts of different machines like how that actually you know you, you rotate it here and it pushes on that thing and that thing pushes on this thing and especially this one since the top of the mechanism the whole fine stage is kind of just floating out there mm-hmm. and it's just riding up and down on this ball screw just seeing it in 3d really helped me kind of understand that like okay you turn it here and that spins the ball screw because it's coupled there and then that pushes on the base and that moves the whole thing up like huh. i really had to huh. my brain had to see it in 3d before it really understood it hmm. interesting so so the the nuts are in the in the base of the thing, right? Yep. yep. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you when you were saying that I, for a second, I was like, I know one end's connected to the gear. I know the other end is connected to the base. D- does the screw extend up into the the body of the the fine half? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I can see how that um, would be elucidated by three D yeah. design. And then some of the smaller details, just like bearing placement. Sometimes, <laughs> at least for me, I, I have to just kind of figure it out as you like okay you need a bearing here to stabilize this shaft and and that sort of thing isn't always super obvious to me but yeah. i'm not an engineer so <laughs> maybe that's expected i mean it's it's visualizing like how torques are applied to a body right is mm-hmm. what you're talking about yeah yeah i can i can get behind that because <laughs> <laughs> i i've definitely designed things in my head uh and then you know built them out of wood or plastic or whatever and gone oh Oh, I forgot that this end of the whole thing is just floppy. Yeah. One thing that I thought was neat to see, like I I didn't know if it would come across on camera or not, like the flexure mechanism itself when it was, when the camshaft was rotating through the middle of the flexure, if you would actually see any movement or not, because it's, I designed mine to have one millimeter of kind of up and down movement in the camshaft so that center bearing in the flexure is moving up or down one millimeter for every rotation and i just didn't know if that would translate to seeing anything of the flexure itself moving but it was kind of cool to see this sped up footage you can actually see the whole thing kind of breathing and moving up and down and kind of stretching horizontally when the cam is rotating so I i was pleased to see that actually came across and you could see visually something happening well and the dial indicator is really what what got it for me yeah that was that was unexpected that was also one of those like yeah let's put this on top and just see if it does anything i honestly no idea if it was going (laughs) to work because again it's like you said everything's in plastic it could be just stretching and pushing in a different direction that it wasn't supposed to so i thought it was equal parts likely that the top of the flexure wouldn't move and some other part of the mechanism would be like bulging out to the side, (laughs) which would have been (laughs) non-ideal. Yeah. But as it turns out, I mean, that probably was happening, but enough of the top of the flexure is moving for us to see it on the indicator. I think it moved like 30 microns or something. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the flex simulation, um, 
in the video, I'm assuming it's straight out of, uh, out of Fusion 360 because they do things like that. Yeah. Yep. Um, that, that helped because yeah, it, it's ideal case. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you were like really like doing a, a complete series or even a complete video, like, I guess the best thing to do would be like design it so that it has enough movement that you can really see it. But as is, like, it's inherently not, not visually attractive. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> you can't attach this thing to, like, you can't put this on a mirror or use it for what it's designed to do. But I think it, it is pretty cool. Like, you know, the coolest thing about this mechanism is that it can, I've read that it can move as slowly as like grass grows, um, which is pretty amazing. Now, your version might not do that, but do you think that there's something like some kind of a cool experiment that you could do that could actually like demonstrate this thing, um, you know, affecting these, this small continuous movement. Um, because I, I just think that would be amazing. Like that's yeah, the cool thing about this. Hmm. I don't know. Attach it to something that, you know, sort of like amplifies or shows but, that movement. No, like no, 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 no. Zach, you've got a uh, machine learning experience. So I'm assuming you could do machine vision pretty easily. Just look for green pixels and coordinate this thing with a, with an actual literal <laughs> blade of grass and have oh, it grow cool. at the same speed, uh, over, um, over a couple of days. That would be actually a good idea. <laughs> totally could do that. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, that was actually my two, my two first thoughts is one, just abusing videography like you could videotape it with some kind of reference right behind it and pretty easily calibrate that and figure out how many pixels it's moving you know every frame or every 100 frames or whatever for something maybe a little more classroom friendly you probably could attach it to like a lever so that yeah. it's pushing up on the short end of the lever and then the long end is pointing right. out at like a yardstick or something and then you hmm. would probably see a pretty dramatic change depending on how slow or fast you were running the stepper motors yeah that'd be fun i'd be curious i thought about trying to quantify like the step precision because you know theirs has something silly like seven nanometers per step mm -hmm. and i was curious what mine worked out to but uh, it isn't quite repeatable enough and so i just didn't bother diving into it too much there's too much like yeah. you know the error bars on mm -hmm on my machine is quite a bit higher than theirs. Colin in the chat has exactly the same thought that I did. I was literally about to say this, Colin. I love this. Uh, put a mirror on it and reflect the laser down a hallway and measure the deflection over a distance. And there you're, you know, it's only one dimensional, but you can do it. And there you're, you're starting to get into like the actual application of the actuator. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be easy to do too. And, you know, you might actually have the, the precision to like actually place a, a laser in the right place, I think. You, you probably have to take off half of, just do the flexure, um, get rid of the ball screw. Yeah, remove that, that horribly janky bolt <laughs> on the bottom. <laughs> yeah, and and 3D print it as one block that you, you know, put a stepper onto. I would really like to machine one at a metal at some point, just to have, because I think yeah. it'd be really cool to have on my desk. So yeah. I might play around mm. with that at some point, but that's that would be a significant undertaking. Flexures aren't Super oh, yeah. easy to do if you don't have like an EDM machine. Okay, so let let's talk about the CAD some more. Um, I, I don't really have any good like questions for you, but like, could you tell us more about the the process of of putting this thing together? Like, I, I guess one question I can ask you is like, Fusion three hundred and sixty is a thorn in my side, um, and I finally <laughs> quit Fusion three hundred and sixty um, when they changed the free plan to only mm -hmm. have like. 
don't know, 10 projects you can have. And like, I do like paying for software. Like I like supporting people, but like the company's huge. They don't need my money. And I, I really don't like the way that Fusion 360 is really easy to use until it isn't. And then suddenly mm-hmm. it's the clunkiest thing in the world. So why Fusion 360? Why not something else? Ha, uh, do you have experience with any other CAD software? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, not a whole lot, which is probably why I'm stuck with Fusion at the moment. It's mostly just the devil, you know, sort of situation. Uh, yes. Yeah. Which, I mean, is obviously their their game plan, right? <laughs> you get people sure. in, it's the Adobe model. You get them sure. used to it, and then they're stuck. Um, I do like it from the manufacturing side because it's easy to go from CAD over to CAM and work up toolpaths and stuff for machining, which is largely why I've stuck with it, just because that's so easy. But let's see. I My only other experience is with Open SCAD. Is that how you pronounce it? Open yeah, SCAD. Open. Yeah, I say SCAD because SCAD you know, poop jokes. <laughs> so I I have used that a fair amount in the past, and I really like as a you know ex programmer like that is my mm-hmm. jam. I get it. Everything makes sense. I have problems with the actual you know Open SCAD itself can be very tedious at times and has strange you know formats for how it does things. But the programming parametric side is really fun to work with for certain types of components. Whereas parametrics in Fusion, I mean they exist, but it's really kind of clunky to to do. It's miserable. Yeah. (laughs) It's really only good for like a few dimensions, not basing your whole thing on parametrics, at least in in my experience. I mean, like, like Fusion 360 lets you name parameters inside. No, it doesn't even let you do that. Yeah. No, that was, I agree. That was one of the things that really bugged me. Like it should not take 12 clicks to define a parameter. Exactly. Yeah, you have to like make the thing and then go find the separate menu to make a parameter and then go back to the thing you made and punch that parameter in. It's just it's really clunky for what should be fast and easy. And you know what? It doesn't take that much work to make it better. Um, FreeCAD has got a spreadsheet like Workbench, I think is what they call it. And like you can put whatever into the spreadsheet you want. You can use formulas and everything and then just name a cell and reference it somewhere else. It's not the best solution. But like if Fusion 360 was to include a spreadsheet uh, feature, like Mm -hmm. I might pay for it (laughs) (laughs) just because everything else does tend to be easy. So did did you do the gears in OpenSCAD? Because that looks like a very good thing for OpenSCAD. Yeah, I I thought about it uh, and I was very close to, but I ended up using a, someone has a plugin for gear generation that you can grab from the the Fusion like plugin repository or whatever. Um, It was okay. (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't super great. I had to go back and forth a lot. Like basically I generate the gears and then do kind of a rough fitment because it wasn't a gear train generator. It just made individual gears. So I'd make two gears with the right ratio and kind of futz with the other parameters to change the size of everything and then go fit them up. I'm like, eh, it doesn't quite fit. And you go back to the plugin and do it again. And it was a little tedious uh, doing it. That would have been a perfect thing for OpenSCAD. But the problem then is like Fusion doesn't really like importing STLs. And so yeah. I was trying to keep everything in like the modeler workspace rather than bringing in mesh files. And I mean, for real, <laughs> like using it, <laughs> using a separate tool, like my, my thought was like, well, I would just do the gears in open SCAD and just hope that I got all, all the dimensions correct. Um, and that honestly probably would have taken longer than just playing around with it 
in Fusion 360. Okay, so can you tell us about any upcoming projects? Like, are we allowed to get a peek into the future? Yeah, so there's a, a project I'm working on. I just got the first like successful result uh, on Friday, so I, I'm super Ooh. stoked about it. Uh, and hopefully it'll get turned into a video in the next week or two. Uh, so I am really interested in like microfabrication stuff, like I've talked about. And one of the core microfabrication techniques is photolithography, where you put down like a photosensitive resist onto whatever surface you're working on and then expose it with ultraviolet light to make a pattern. Uh, and there's a bunch of different ways to do this. And I have mostly neglected it and tried to do microfabrication without photoresist through like the laser approach, just like ablating stuff because it was easier. But it's it's finally time to have a, a lithography device. So I made a direct right laser lithography machine, which it's basically like a, a laser light show, but shrunk down to a very small scale. So it's got a, a UV laser and it shoots it through this optical train. It goes through a, a XY like Galvo scanner, like you would see on a, a laser light show, and then refocuses it down to a microscope objective and shoots it down onto your photoresist. Uh, so I just did that and just got it working, pulled up some uh, SEM images of the kind of exposed resist and makes little lines and it's all it's all very exciting <laughs> well dang that's cool this one in particular i mean it's a neat result like i was really happy that it worked um this technique is known as like maskless lithography as yeah. opposed to the big boys that use like big chrome masks that are like super complicated and expensive to fabricate um so this doesn't use a mask it just kind of directly yeah, writes it this is the 3d printing compared to injection molding yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Um, but it, this particular project is really the reason I started the YouTube channel, <laughs> ironically enough. Uh, I was working on trying to do maskless lithography to do like DIY transistors for five years ago. Um, and I was 3D printing stuff and I couldn't really get like the the precision I needed for building a lithography machine. And so that's when I started exploring machining and that's when I got the, the milling machine and it all kind of, I got sidetracked basically. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but now I'm back and I've got the machine working. Although ironically, a lot of it is 3D printed. So I didn't need to take that four year detour, but. Okay. So you actually do want to try making transistors. Yeah. I, I think it would be cool. The one thing is I really don't like working with uh, hydrofluoric acid. It's a not very fun acid to work with. And so. This kind of goes back to enjoying alternative methods. So I'd kind of like to look at alternative ways of doing transistor style cool. work without having to actually do the real transistor work. Um, but those will need photolithography to do it. So cool. Well, I'm really excited. Like it, it's it's kind of silly, but I only just like really understood what transistors are and do and how to use them in the last like two years. And yet they're such a fundamental part of our world as a whole. And so like the, I, I'm excited to learn uh, getting to see these kind of inside out um, with all the, uh, the accessory bits of like all the, you know, getting the techniques to work that'll keep me interested. So I'm really excited about this. This is really cool. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked too, especially because I am actually really terrible at all things electronics. Like <laughs> my skills end at an Arduino and a breadboard. And yeah, so I, I, it'll be a real learning experience for me too, because I don't 
fully understand how all this stuff actually works at a hardware level. No. Yeah, me too. So that means that you're going to produce videos that will be <laughs> instructional and entertaining for me in particular. I'm very generous with other people's time. In the chat, the wonder idiot is is Mike and he really knows electronics well. So like if you need to bounce something off of him, he's probably the right person to DM. I um, certainly will. I mean, and like, honestly, you could go down the list of people in our discord and everybody knows something really interesting. Uh, but he's the first one who comes to mind for, for that kind of thing. So did, did you have, um, a final product in mind that you wanted to be able to, to try and produce or just like you want to do some work in, in the transistor world and, and call it a day and see what, see what comes out of it. Yeah. Nothing, nothing specific, uh, I've kind of kept myself from thinking about it because I don't want to, you know, yeah. put the horse yep. before the cart sort of thing yep. or cart before yep. the horse. Um, there are a few baby projects. So getting a transistor working would be really cool. Uh, I've always been interested in like analog computing. So I think it'd be neat to build some analog style computers uh, as opposed to just like purely digital stuff, which would be kind of cool. Uh, and then <laughs> there's some intermediate term ones. Like uh, I'd love to build a little hard drive head because they're pretty well like a hard drive head from the 90s say uh, mm -hmm. were pretty big and would be well within the capabilities because it's only a couple layers it's relatively straightforward dimensions and the structure and that would be a really fun demonstration and you know build essentially a giant floppy disk and and show it working it would be pretty cool like what what's actually in the in the head i thought i thought it was just a. Uh... Uh, basically like an electromagnet and all the all the interesting stuff was was on the board yeah no that's basically it oh, okay. uh it's it's just a, a very shrunk down kind yeah. of electromagnet so it's making the little copper coil and uh essentially it's at least the older varieties they've changed as they get more modern but the the older intermediate sized ones are i don't know 20 microns across and it's a little copper coil with a little um, permalloy or other like paramagnetic kind of yoke mm. around it. And so you need about three or four layers stacked to make that thing kind of in a flat planar section and it needs to be moderately small. And so it's kind of a, a perfect DIY project because there's nothing yeah. too complicated about it and all the yeah. hard electronics can be out like an Arduino or something. Yeah. There's a, there's a YouTube channel, uh, Carl uh, Bugia, I think is how his name is pronounced. Uh, and mm. he does, um, electromagnetic, uh, electromagnets in PCB form, which is like simultaneously idiotic and wonderful. <laughs> um, he does a lot of like flex PCBs and having like electromagnets, you know, make like little hopping robots and, and weird, you know, oh, actuators and, and PCB motors and things like that. And it's, oh, is he like abusing the PCB to make the coil? Yes. And then, oh, interesting. Yes. And, um, I love He's that. sponsored, I think, by PCB Way, and like I'm sure that when they get an order from him, they're just like, "Not another one." How much are we paying <laughs> this guy? Uh, but like, it, it's yeah, it's really cool. Okay, Zach, we have taken up uh, too much of your time. Although I could sit and chat with you all day long because you do the kind of nerdy shit that I love. Um, <laughs> so uh, in order to get us out of here, I'm going to push us into our final two questions. Our penultimate question, as always, is where would you like to be found on the internet? Folks can find me in my YouTube channel, Breaking Taps, and probably my Twitter, also Breaking Taps. And then the 
final segment, the little game that Ben sort of invented called Overrated Underrated. No, I stole it from Planet Money. You, that he stole it from Planet Money. Yeah, we're I just talking about Planet Money. I am proud to steal from NPR. Yes. <laughs> overrated Underrated by way of Planet Money. All right. So the first thing, safety squints. Overrated oh. or underrated? <laughs> safety squints are overrated. Get yourself some safety goggles. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling you were going to say that. Uh, number two, loose tolerances. I'd say they're adequately rated. I'm a terrible machinist, so I'm okay with loose tolerances. So, <laughs> you know, you just got to design everything else to accommodate your bad tolerances. All right, next up, cell culture. Oh, um, underrated. I think cell culture is super cool. I would still do it today if I could justify having a cell culture lab in my basement. Pop-up YouTube ads. <laughs> so uh, I'm a bad YouTuber in that I run ad block on everything. So <laughs> I don't actually ever see ads on YouTube. Um, so probably overrated. No yeah. one likes ads. <laughs> I think you're in good company there. And lastly, linear bearings. Oh, um, oh appropriately rated. I, you know, actually, I'm going to say overrated. There's better things than linear bearings. I'm a big fan of flexures, as we've talked about. And there's also like air bearings and hydrostatic bearings. So we're going to say overrated. Linear bearings are 1800 century. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. This was just as good as I was hoping. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. This was super fun. Moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have just one winner, Destin Miller. And the clue was bringing fire to icy worlds. The uh, good old, like, what was it I said? The George R. R. Martin. Right, right. A spacecraft of ice and fire. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what is this spacecraft of ice and fire? <laughs> right, so this event is the 18th of March, 2003, and it is the authorization of Project Prometheus, which if you're not familiar with that, you might know its sort of headline mission by a different name. So the idea behind Project Prometheus was to develop a deep space nuclear-powered vehicle for outer solar system exploration. And so it was going to be this large, vers versatile type of multi-mission spacecraft. And that's where essentially the bringing fire to icy worlds clue comes from right off the bat. <laughs> the uh, nuclear power is the fire. And the icy worlds uh, that it's going to, and also bring fire, Prometheus, right? It's known for bringing fire to the humans in mythology. Uh, the icy worlds were the moons of Jupiter and beyond. Yeah, so this project uh, had a bunch of NASA level one requirements. There was going to be uh, specifically nuclear electric propulsion. So this is using your nuclear reactor to generate the electricity that then powers your ion and Hall effect thrusters. Uh, it needed to carry at least 1,500 kilograms of payload, which could be science instruments or landers or other things if it wanted to. Uh, the technology should be transferable to lunar and Martian transportation and surface operations, which is pretty cool to think about the idea of we're still, I guess, wading into that a uh, little bit about getting nuclear power on the moon for energy generation if we try to make this lunar ecosystem uh, take. And uh, another requirement was uh, the exploration of the major moons of Jupiter, leaving out Io. So this is Europa, Ganymede, uh, Ganymede, and Callisto. And so Europa is really buried deep into Jupiter's gravitational well and very difficult to get to. So if you were going to go visit three of them <laughs> in terms of cost effectiveness, you just visit the outer three. And so the, the headline mission of the pro of Project Prometheus would have been the Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter. And so GEMO, you might have heard of this, you might have seen the spacecraft, and so if you're not familiar with Project Prometheus, you might be familiar with GEMO. 
And so a little bit of the nomenclature that GMO was the mission, Project Prometheus was the project slash program, and then the uh, deep space vehicle itself would be called Prometheus 1, Prometheus 2, uh, and so on if they did additional ones, which hopefully they would uh, if they did it at all. Uh, in case it is a obvious already <laughs> if you're a spaceflight fan, uh, this did not end up actually getting launched. Uh, as far as the history of it, uh, they had a pre-phase A and phase A that took place in 2002 through 2005. So uh, again, this clue, the authorization was in 2003. And they completed that A-OK. -okay. This included studies and mission and systems definitions. Um, and they have therefore a lot of cool documentation and information that's publicly available for you to check out. Now, the fun things I like to think about is this alternate timeline is uh, I will tell you exactly when, it, well, it was canceled in 2005, but phase B would have been when they did their preliminary design from 2005 to 2008, and then phases C and D, where uh, C would be designing the spacecraft, and D would be building, and then assembly, testing, and um, launch operations, uh, 2008 to 2015, and then the actual operations would be taking place uh, from the middle of 2015 through September of 2025. So we would be in the middle of uh, GMO doing its GMO mission right now to the moons of Jupiter uh, in this alternative uh, timeline. And so it's pretty cool. I'll, I'll tell you exactly where we would be in the mission plan. But yeah, so this is a very cool looking, very large, very ambitious spacecraft. And it's an ambitious uh, con ops as well. So it would involve uh, three uh, launch vehicles carrying two transfer vehicles plus the GMO spaceship itself into low Earth orbit. Um, this would be a 407-kilometer, 28-and-a-half-degree inclination Earth assembly orbit. And so it would spend a good amount of time there, about six months before heading off to Jupiter. It would head off to Jupiter in 2015, and once it reaches the planet, Around 2021, there would be a transfer stage that would take it to Callisto, the outermost of the large Galilean moons. And so Callisto operations would begin in 2022 to 2023. And so that's actually where we are in the deadline right now, is we would be uh, months away from uh, Callisto injection and currently in the transfer stage mm. towards that moon, which is pretty cool. Callisto is uh, a really interesting world. I, it's got to get even more credit than it currently does. It's absolutely pockmarked. Um, very dark, very interesting. And so after uh, checking out Callisto from 2022 to 2023, uh, Ganymede would be reached in 2024, and then finally Europa in 2025 with progressively narrower transfer stages. Uh, once you got into Callisto's orbit, you'd be able to essentially fall in further to Ganymede and then Europa more easily. And so Europa, right, with the... Uh, very well-known subsurface ocean. Ganymede and Callisto have subsurface oceans as well, but Europa's has probably uh, rock at the bottom and thus potentially hydrothermal vents and thus is a more interesting astrobiological target than Ganymede and Callisto, which are likely their oceans are bounded by ice above and below. So, yeah, as for the spacecraft itself, uh, it looks like a giant Christmas tree to me. I don't know if you guys could think of a better explanation for it, but it looks like something I built out of Legos when I was a kid, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It consists of three major modules. Uh, the reactor module, 
as you can imagine, for power. The spacecraft module, which is essentially everything else. And then the mission module, which is an undefined module that would be mission specific. Uh, whether you were going, you were doing the GMO mission to the moons of Jupiter or beyond or doing something else. And so the, the reactor at the front, uh, it has a, uh, a high temperature gas cooled reactor with, uh, you know, kind of standard graphite moderators. Uh, the gas cooling is interesting. I'm not, you know, typically, right, we have uh, liquid for our coolant, typically. Uh, but there have been gas-cooled reactors built on Earth. Um, and they use a, a Brayton cycle, which is just a type of thermodynamic cycle where gas is your working fluid, uh, to basically drive these uh, turbine alternators uh, that serve as the power plant. And so that's essentially where uh, the, the whole tip of this uh, spacecraft, it's... Uh, that's where all that's happening. And so the reactor is much smaller compared to the uh, turbo alternators. And there's a shield in between them uh, that acts, that basically creates a little skirt around the base of the uh, uh, reactor module. And, and that presumably fills in underneath as well and kind of blocks anything that isn't going directly into the, the Brayton react, uh, alternators. And uh, that creates a cone of protection behind the rest of the spacecraft. And thus uh, why you have this kind of Christmas tree uh, panel because the rest of the spacecraft, most of it by area, I guess, is these radiators to get rid of all this nuclear heat that's being generated, and they progressively get wider and wider as you move towards the base of the spacecraft. And so I thought it, they had an interesting design approach where they put an aeroshell over the uh, nuclear reactor, so if it were to re-enter, uh, right, spending six months in low Earth orbit, and so if it did re-enter because there was a problem that it would contain the amount of nuclear waste being uh, disposed of. And so they would jettison this aeroshell once they're on orbit, or once they're actually leaving the Earth, only then would they get rid of the aeroshell and turn on the reactor. And so they would basically, I guess, go by solar power until then. So real quick, let, let me point out that the, the radiators are really, maybe I just have a weird way of thinking about this, but like the radiators aren't only there to keep the thing from overheating. But like they're actually there for power generation because the way that we generate power is by moving heat from one place to another, mm -hmm. right? Like your refrigerator yeah. takes electricity and moves heat. This is moving heat to generate electricity. And so like they are radiators, but in some sense, they're also like backward solar panels. Like they're, they're spewing out photons instead of soaking them up. <laughs> and something about that just makes, makes me feel good. So they're basically just radiating the heat away. So it's part of the thermodynamic cycle, right? Like you're trying to yeah. create that, you're trying to create that temperature gradient so that you exactly. can create mechanical work. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, and so these radiators, right, these are along the, these comprise most of the spacecraft module. And so uh, essentially right. there's a 43 meter boom Okay, so I'll say that again, 43 meters yeah. to give you a sense <laughs> of how long a spacecraft this is and why it needs to be assembled on orbit. Um, it, although these are all deployed, and so you could, uh, we'll have an image in the show notes that shows you what the spacecraft looks like when it's stowed, but uh, it's still, you know, a very massive undertaking. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so you have these, these radiators uh, progressively getting uh, wider and wider uh, off of the boom uh, as they move outward. Uh, as you go towards the base of the spacecraft. And so uh, then once you get to the, if you get past all the radiators, if you start at the top of the spacecraft moving down, uh, you finally get to the actual spacecraft bus itself. Some of the interesting things about this, it has all the kind of bells and whistles you need for a typical, for 
a spacecraft, you know, uh, high gain, medium gain, medium gain antennas, but also had a deployable pair of ion thruster platforms or pods. And so uh, these basically would fold down and you had these uh, booms at maybe a 45-ish degree angle compared to the, uh, uh, the axis of the uh, spacecraft. And um, at the base of them would be these... Uh, these little square blocks that consisted of uh, four ion thrusters and three Hall effect thrusters that would be used for the main propulsion of the spacecraft. And then there were six small Hall effect thrusters that would be used for uh, attitude control. And then finally, uh, at the very base of the uh, spacecraft would be a docking segment. Uh, which would be used for early operations, as well as connecting the transfer stages uh, to get you basically on your uh, way to the outer solar system, or you know, Jupiter in this case, which I believe was a, uh, a C3 of uh, uh, 10,000 or 10 kilometers uh, squared per second squared. And so uh, pretty big up there. And, um, and, and that, that docking adapter had solar panels, which would power it when it was in LEO before you had the, uh, the reactor turned on. And then finally, the third module, which was, again, kind of undefined, is the mission module. It'd be unique to each one, but the spacecraft bus would have a scan platform and a turntable, and they came up with a bunch of reference instruments that would be the types of things we always talk mm. about when we talk about the instruments on there. So synthetic aperture radar, spectrometers, magnetometers, high-resolution cameras, all that good stuff. And uh, all in, this thing, when you included the uh, design growth allowance and uncertainty allowance... Uh, in addition to their best estimates, would be uh, a little over 23 tons dry or 35 tons wet mass. And so for comparison, that is uh, the 23 tons is still not quite an Apollo module uh, or Apollo uh, uh, command and service module. But, you know, it's, I think the closest thing to it roughly was a uh, the Tiangong space station is <laughs> about 22 tons uh, right now. And so, because a lot of that, you know, it's giant size is just, you know, booms and radiators, I guess. Uh, really interesting spacecraft. Again, uh, uh, you want to Google a picture of uh, GMO, Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter, uh, to check it out. But the idea was if this were to become a thing, then you could do all sorts of stuff with it, <laughs> right? Uh, Saturn and Titan exploration, uh, visiting Neptune and do a comprehensive study of that system, rendezvousing with multiple Kuiper Belt objects, or acting as a interstellar precursor, where it could get to 200 AU going to the heliopause nose. I'd never heard it called the nose before, but presumably that's just the nearest part of the heliopause, right? The part that's with the shock wave kind of going to the, or with the wave behind it, the bow shock to the right, the nose would be to the left, you know, <laughs> the, the direction of the sun's travel. And so ultimately, though, this was canceled. Um, there's only so much money to go around. And in this time... Uh, in 2005, uh, returned to flight, the International Space Station and the crew exploration vehicle, which ultimately uh, became, you know, or which Orion won that and became that, uh, were more top priorities. And so they were asked not to continue into the preliminary design phase B and uh, officially discontinued effective October 2nd, 2005. Uh, yeah, so this was a really interesting mission. Um, I forgot to mention Northrop Grumman won the award for building most of the spacecraft itself, but it was a big management challenge. Uh, JPL was in charge of it, but 
the Department of Energy, uh, Northrop, uh, five NASA field centers, universities, and all the kind of independent contractors uh, were all involved as well. And uh, Chubby uh, asked a great question in the chat. What would it have launched on? And they were flexible about that. They considered, I believe, a Delta IV Heavy and an Atlas V, but they also considered uh, next generation vehicles, kind of unspecified. And so they would basically just have to make that decision based on what had the capabilities to get them on the trajectory that they needed for the spacecraft. Speaking of launch, did you mention the thing that the boom folds in half to fit in a fairing? Uh, only vaguely, but thanks yeah, for bringing that up. But yeah, this whole thing as ridiculously as ridiculously large of a footprint as it covers, yeah. you you would be able to essentially stow this because everything was essentially deployable. The boom was deployable. The radiators coming off the boom, the off the boom were deployable, and so you really were able to get into a fairly nice uh, compact configuration. Uh, we'll we'll have that in, uh, in, in image in the show notes for sure. Oh yeah, uh, I'm gonna take this PDF and strip it for parts. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, that was an awesome This Week in Spaceflight History. Uh, ben, let's see if you can match it. Uh, next week <laughs> is the 22nd through the 28th of March. And do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Uh, so next week in 1961, the clue is Ghost Beetroot Calls Home. So your last clue is Watery Potato. This one involves a beetroot. Yeah. You know what? Like all my all my CSA vegetables, my crop share vegetables, they're all root veggies. So maybe it's just in my head right now. All right. Well, if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. Got four coming up. And Ben, what's the first one? All right. So the first one's really exciting. This is the rollout of STS-1. Uh, STS-1. SLS-1. <laughs> Big difference. Some similarities, but a big difference. Um, so SLS-1 is going to be rolling out to the pad uh, nominally for a wet dress rehearsal, but of course there's all the fit tests and everything that go along with it. Th this is not for the launch. They're going to do the wet dress rehearsal, and then I'm I'm fairly confident they're going to um, take it back to the VAB. Um, but yeah, SLS-1 uh, has been stacked for a little bit. And, uh, and it's going to be out on the pad for the first time. Uh, very exciting. So you can actually watch this rollout happen, uh, on, uh, NASA TV. The coverage will begin on Thursday, March 17th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. They will eventually be launching this thing, hopefully in May. Uh, we'll, we'll see how far back that slips. Um, it, it's already slipped a number of times waiting for this wet dress rehearsal. After that, on March 18th, we have a Soyuz uh, launching with ISS mission 67S. So this is a uh, this is carrying three cosmonauts to the International Space Station, and it will be carrying uh, Commander Oleg Artemyev uh, and flight engineers uh, Denis Matvyev and Sergei Korsakov. I think I said those right. Um, and this will be flying in the 2.1A configuration, and the launch time will be at 15.55 UTC, which is about close to noon on the East Coast, and it'll be launching from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Uh, don't know if you're going to be able to watch that, but it is happening. And then after that, evidently, the Soyuz is taking the shortcut, and at only 2.15 p.m. on March 18th, Friday, will be coverage, uh, coverage of the rendezvous and docking will begin uh, with the docking to the pre-trial module scheduled at 3.05 p.m. So it looks like eh, maybe four-ish hours after their 
um, launch. Or sorry, three-ish hours after their launch. And then um, later in the uh, afternoon uh, or evening or morning, wherever you are, at 5.15 p.m. Eastern Time will be coverage of the hatch opening and welcome ceremony at the International Space Station. And uh, I thought it was an interesting little bit tidbit here is that this will mean there are five cosmonauts on station uh, with four astronauts and one East uh, astronaut as well. Well, so that's 10, huh? Sorry, and, and one other thing that is an interesting fact about this Soyuz launch that I had to do a double take on, but I guess it makes sense. This will be the first time that a Soyuz is taking only cosmonauts to the space station. Yeah, I kind of noticed that, yeah. The first time ever or the first time in X years? First time ever. Wow. Rip. So I long as they've been that. going to station, they've been taking uh, an American on board. Or, or American or possibly, I, I say, somebody, uh, a non-Roscosmos cosmonaut. Yeah. Interesting. Good tidbit. And then finally, we have Starlink Group 412 flying on a Falcon 9 Block 5. Uh, this is another chunk of 46 satellites. Um, that is launching on Saturday, March 19th at 0130 hours UTC uh, out of uh, SLC-40 if it makes a difference to you. And uh, with that, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Kenton, Deathkin, Chubby, Colin, Delta V, Mike, VT, Gopal, Alex, the Greek, Chris, a.k.a. Stein Garfield, and Zach for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.